Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Melissa Widner. Melissa is the CEO of Lighter Capital, the pioneer and leader in revenue-based financing for tech startups. Prior to Lighter Capital, Melissa was the managing director of NAB Ventures, the VC arm of the National Australia Bank, and a general partner at Seattle-based Seapoint Ventures. She was also the founder and CEO of Seven Software and the CEO of Northwest Industrial Supply, where under her leadership, both companies generated over a 10x return to investors. Melissa is also the co-founder and chairperson of Sydney-based Heads Over Heels, an organization that supports women entrepreneurs running companies with high growth potential. She has served as a lecturer at the University of Washington's Graduate School of Business, where she taught courses on venture capital and entrepreneurship. Melissa has also served on the boards of several venture-backed technology companies in both the U.S. and Australia. She holds an MA from Stanford University and a BA from the University of Washington. Go dogs! Welcome, Melissa. Thanks, Shauna. It's great to be here. So good to see you. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. You ready? All right. Okay. If there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Uh, changes. I love it. I love the world. I love prepping for this podcast, I have to say. You've done so much. Um, what is a habit that you are trying to create? Exercise. <clears throat> That's good. On a regular basis, not a sporadic basis. It's a game changer. Okay, if there mm -hmm. was one social issue that you could attack and kind of solve, what would it be? Climate change. I mean, that's an easy one, right? Yeah. What trait do you most value in a friend? So, honesty. Keeping it real. I like it. What three words would your kids use to describe you? <sighs> Pain in the ass. That's four, four words. Pain in the ass. If four yeah. words. Pain in ass. How about that? <laughs> a favorite off the beaten path Australian destination. Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, Bells at Kilcare, which is a it's a great boutique place. And in fact, I'm this weekend going for um, our I think it's our fifth annual Girls Weekend. It's just a it's an awesome place. Cool little boutique. Hotel on a beach, great restaurant. 
Yeah. It's making me want to plan out. I've been to Australia, but I haven't taken the kids and I don't think my husband's actually been, but if I go, I want to just have you like help me plan the whole thing. (laughs) For those who are listening, Melissa is in Australia, but you're not from Australia. You're from the U S specifically Seattle, right? Yeah. I mean, I moved uh, to Seattle in high school um, to Bellevue to be more specific, but um, I absolutely consider that my home. Yeah. Where were you born? Where were you raised as a kid? So I, I, the reason I said changes. So I was, I was born in the Bay area and lived there until I was about 13 and in Colorado for a little bit and then moved to Washington just before my junior year in high school. Oh, I didn't even know that. I don't think. How did I not know that? Um, so what, what took you all over the place? Like, how did that end up? Well, so my parents divorced and then my mom became a working mom from a, you know, stay at home mom to a working mom. And then she got a promotion and we moved in, to Colorado and that's how we ended up in Colorado. And then I ended up back in um, Washington and lived with my dad when I was in high school. So I always, um, I always said that was such a good uh, experience in terms of really being comfortable in a new place. Like I can go into a new place and not know anybody and be just fine because I changed yeah, schools. Yeah. I think I, you know, I, I think we moved five times before I was a senior in high school and um, I had a really good experience in all the places and, and still have friends from the different places. That says a lot about <laughs> you though, specifically, because I think that a lot of people would have that experience and feel like some sort of like, like some people would feel disrupted by that. And I love that your perspective is like, um, you know, kind of the silver lining of it. Yeah, well, I think um, there's definitely a silver lining of um, seeing your mom go to work as a woman and seeing your mom become the the breadwinner and do really well, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that was a great role model to have. And I never really thought of any other path. So yeah. does she know that she's your, is she kind of, would you consider her your role model? Um, I wouldn't consider her my role model. She, she passed away um, oh, a while sorry. ago. So yeah, thank you. But um, she had high expectations with sort of low involvement. It's like, you should do really well. And that's just the expectation. I'll go figure out how to make it happen. So yeah. it wasn't a tiger mom that's in there like making it happen, but it's like a, you know, yeah, this is what you need to do. I, I wish I could do that more with my kids and let go a little bit more, you know? It's, it's so hard. Everybody says it's so cliche, like it is the hardest job though. And so who were some of your influences as a kid? Like, did you have teachers or I guess your dad, like who were your role models? Yeah, I mean, of course your parents to some extent and you take the, you know, the good and the bad from them. But, um, oh, I had a great coach, a great tennis coach who was, um, amazing Carol Ann Castell and a good friend of mine from high school. Her mom was a, a successful businesswoman, and that was, she was a role model for me as well. So I think um, seeing, you know, seeing these, these women and especially entrepreneurs, I was always drawn to entrepreneurship. I was, you know, had a little business when I was 11 years old. And so I, I, I think awesome. anybody who was, who was, you know, following that path, I was always quite interested in. Yeah. So what was your business when you were 11? (laughs) My business when I was 11 was stuffing envelopes. So I was working for an organization. I was, I was actually walking home from school one day and saw this boy go into this building. Um, This was down in the Bay area. And I said, where are you going? And he said, Oh, I have a job um, with this. I have a job stuffing envelopes. And I said, Oh yeah. What do you get paid? He's like, I get paid 70 cents per hundred that I stuff. I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Are they looking for more people? And he said, yeah. 
So I went and started stuffing envelopes and um, I asked if I could take them home and they said, yeah, you can take them home. So I took them home and then I lived in an apartment complex and I, I recruited a bunch of kids. You know, I was I like in love this. fifth grade or sixth grade to do it for 50 cents a hundred. So that was my first business. And my mom thought that was really terrible, but I realized like that's, that's just business. Uh, that's, yeah, that's called business. That's amazing. Yeah. That's perfect. So what'd you do with the money? So I, I was a good saver. I was a very good saver as a yeah. kid. I'm still a good saver. I was about to say, but I feel I, like we talked I about this and you were saying saver. that you're still a good saver. <laughs> I, I was, I think we did talk about this before Shauna, but I was, yeah. I was a good saver. So I saved, I mean, look, we were talking at that time, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars, which was huge money when you're 10 or 11 years old. But, um, I, I, I saved. Yeah. And yeah. where I don't have a really exciting story mm -hmm. to tell. I saved and saved until I bought my first house in Seattle when I was um, 23 and it was a hundred thousand dollar house in West Seattle. And, you know, probably the savings back then kept building up to, oh, yeah. you know, eventually being able to have a down payment on a house. Yeah. And would you, if you had to do it all over again, make the same choice as far as attending university of Washington? Yeah. Yeah. Loved, loved University of Washington. Absolutely. You have four kids, right? Mm -hmm. And how are any of them college? Like what? One just graduated from University of Washington, which yeah, is right. I remember right? One yeah. is a junior at Wharton. Um, and then two are, two are younger. One's yeah. in high school, one's in primary school. Yeah. So you've been through this and you know, like asking through that perspective, it's so different when we went to school. It was just like, oh, I feel like going to school here. I'll apply there. But it wasn't this tiger mom vibe that all these yeah, kids were getting, I mean, all it was this pressure. But it wasn't like, yeah, I think that's probably why I am a bit of a, you know, I want to get involved in it because I was completely on my own. And I always think if I had some guidance, you know, I remember filling out my college applications and handwriting them. You oh, know. Of course. Yeah. And what did you, <laughs> what did you end up studying at UW? Um, international studies, trade and finance in the Jackson school. That's incredible. And so you had a sense at least to pursue business. You knew that you had this entrepreneurial bug. And I remember you telling me, I love the story that you told me about starting your hair bow business. Yeah. Yeah. Tell so me more I, about that. In, so in college and, you know, this is in the eighties, um, when big hair was in and uh, my roommate and I started a hair accessory business and this was scrunchies and bows and we had like 11 or 12 different designs um, and we basically created a board and then we went to, around to all the sororities and took orders and you know we got a couple thousand dollars of prepayment orders so that's what we did we just we made bows that's what we did in our and where did time. you source the like fabric and stuff Oh, there was a place down in Soto where you could go. It was like a wholesale and you could get like the clips and the fabric and that kind of thing. It was called M&M Bows. And it's I interesting, it. my, my business partner, uh, Mignon Fogarty, who was a sorority sister, um, she's now, we, we ended up reconnecting at Stanford. She was getting her PhD in molecular biology. She was an oh English undergrad, undergrad major at University of Washington. And I was there um, in the business school and we reconnected, but she's now Grammar Girl. She's like this famous author. She's written seven books on grammar. Oh, I've and heard she's, of her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. We had a bow business together way back That's in. Incredible. And, and scrunchies are back in. So. Scrunchies are huge. Um, yeah. So what was the result of that? You sold that business, right? Like actually- No, no, money? no, that was just, that kept us in. Well, look, 
back then it paid tuition because tuition at University of Washington was $500 a quarter, you know, not including room and board, but the actual tuition. Yeah. So that paid, that paid for college, but it did lead to, um, you know, the first, you know, big job I had was um, running an industrial, the industrial supply company. And it's actually, you probably know uh, the, the, um, the people who, whose dad owned it, but I it was one of my sorority sisters and her father saw me with this bow business and thought I was really entrepreneurial. And he bought this company to turn around and I was going to go to law school because that's what you do when you have a liberal arts degree. And he said, why don't you come in and try and run this company and turn it around? And that was the industrial supply company. So we did that. He made a 15X return on his investment. So we turned it around. It was, um, it, it was really successful. We How had a very successful How old were you at that time? That's, that's incredible. I was uh, 23, 20, almost 23 when I started it. Yeah. When I started, when I started working, it was a 45 year old company. So I'm asking from the perspective as, a, you know, as a mom, hopefully our kids listen to this. I'm like, what was it about you? Like, what did he see in you that differentiated you? Like this grit, this hustle, like how did, how did you show up like that for him? Well, I think um, it was actually his daughter who was my friend who would go home and I was doing some stock trading. It was right after the market crash in 87, I was doing some stock trading. That's where you had to get up and call your broker. And she would talk to her dad about me. I think someone who had a business and, and was doing this and putting herself through school, you know, and, and he just, he thought that was great because she, you know, I think well, to this day, it's she's, rare. It's Melissa. <laughs> well, to this day, rare. it's not rare. It's not rare anymore. Now everybody in college. But think about yeah. that back then. You're like, okay, this is my girlfriend who started a company, who's paying her way through college, who's trading stocks you know, in the morning, like getting up early. Yeah. That's, that was definitely, it was weird. It was weird back then. It's not weird now. It's pretty, it's great. It's awesome to go to university of Washington now and see, you know, all the businesses that undergrads are starting yeah. and all the resources that are available, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Would you have been successful or happy? Do you think if you had pursued uh, going back to law school and like been a lawyer? Probably. I mean, I think I, you know, I, I mean, business is absolutely where I should have been. I can think back to like when I was five years old, I was so entrepreneurial and not oh, all yeah. really successful entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of them came to it later in life, but, um, but it wasn't even a path. I don't know. As a girl, I wasn't even thinking that way. I was thinking, yeah. you know, what do you do and what, what did you do? I mean, this is going back to, you know, Sean, I know you're a little bit younger than I am, but you know, it was, I mean, that's what you did. If you were a good student in liberal arts, you went to law school. Right. Interesting. And so how have you kind of parlayed that into your messaging to your kids? So, yeah, I look, um, they're not going to have the same motivation that I had because, you know, as a child of divorce and going from, if you have changing economic circumstances when you're younger, it's a lot of motivation. And I lived in, um, Bellevue and went to Bellevue High School, which, you know, is the, the catchment is Medina. It's a very wealthy area. And, but we weren't wealthy at all. So that's, that is good motivation. So yes. my kids will not have that motivation. Yes. A lot of guests that I've had on are, have had obviously financial success. And it always is interesting when I talk about how you pass on the grit. Like, I guess what, what is your driver or your fuel to keep you wanting to continue to take on so much? Well, I think now with lighter, it's um, what I love and what I found out that I really love. So when I, when I sold seven software, that was a great exit. And it's, you know, before that work had always been um, 
something you did to make money and get financial security or something I did to make money and get financial security. And then, you know, once I had that, I thought, oh, great, you know, now I don't have to work. I can just do whatever. And then what I found is that I just love starting companies and I really love working with entrepreneurs. You know, I went and yeah. did charitable endeavors and, and, and that was great, but I absolutely love that piece of um, being involved in the startup. So um, I, I was in venture capital for a couple of decades, and that's great because you get to um, do that in venture capital. You're working with the most interesting people on the planet, startup mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. And, um, and then lighter capital is um, even better because we are providing capital to, we're providing growth capital to entrepreneurs and we're not taking any equity and we're not taking any control. So we just get to do, do all, to do all the fun stuff, which is you know give them capital, give them advice, give them connections. And I've never been involved in a company um, whose customers love them this much. Well, it's it's such a great business model and it's such a win-win. I love Lighter Capital also. And I want to- I mean, I, I, mean, I didn't start it. It wasn't my idea, but it's so good. And it I didn't, so I knew good. it was good when we invested, but I when I came in as an investor, but until I was actually involved in the company, I just, I, um, you know, I didn't yeah. have a, a, an appreciation for it. Right. I want to go back to, I mean, we haven't even touched on like <laughs> when you, I guess the advice you would give as far as getting an MBA, did you think that that, um, yes, yes. And people you know, ask when, me when, this when people, all, well, I do yeah. ask a lot of people with an MBA and I, I just want your opinion on it because obviously getting an MBA versus getting an MBA at Stanford, two different things. Um, right. yeah. so how has that, I guess, helped propel or um, like how has that has that impacted your career? Well, I think it, it opens up a lot of doors. It was really um, surprising to me the day I showed up at Stanford Business School, the day we all did, um, there were re recruiters and there were, you know, um, events, you know, really well catered events all the time from day one. And I thought, that's so interesting. Like I'm the same person I was at University of Washington, you know, why weren't they there? People Why love the pedigree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it really does. I think it, um, it, it, it opens up doors, but it's not for all these doors are open anyway. You just have to work harder to get in them. Then it kind of, it kind of makes it easier, which, which maybe makes people not as hungry. Right. So, but I would say just, it, it gives you, you know, it gives you this, uh, a credibility that, you know, whether it's deserved or not, it's going to open doors for fundraising, for partnerships, for recruiting people, um, so I would absolutely recommend it. I, I've talked to a lot of people about it, you know, going back to business school and, and they're looking at it from a, um, absolute economic standpoint. I don't know what it costs now. It's probably like a hundred grand a year or something, but they're saying, okay, I'm going to take two years off of work and not get paid, you know, take that break in my career and have to pay a hundred thousand dollars a year, whatever business school costs now. And they're looking at it from, um, an economic standpoint without taking, I think without taking into account all the other ancillary benefits. But you were you aware of those benefits before you applied? I mean, what, what drove you to even apply to begin with? Well, I think I always, I always knew I'd go back and I, I always knew that higher education was something I would do. So, um, and, uh, you know, business really made a lot of sense after running the industrial supply company. But was I aware of the benefits? I think, yeah, somewhat. Sure. Yeah. I think I, I didn't have, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that world where, you know, the recruiters are just knocking on your door from day one, because, you know, that's not what I had at University of Washington. And, and I was in a pretty, um, you know, isolated business running an industrial supply company. Yeah. I mean, our customers were, 
school districts and um, hospitals and you know that I, w I wasn't in this you know world of consulting or investment banking so totally it really opened my eyes yeah. to that tell me about yeah. seven software yeah so seven software was started um I did uh I did my um uh summer um after my first year of business school at Goldman Sachs and it was really interesting seeing like these valuations that tech companies were getting um, compared to running an industrial supply company. But my um, boyfriend at the time, he was at Microsoft and he created a product to automate um, procurement for internal use. And um, it saved Microsoft $35 million. And they were you know, talking about this product a lot in terms of here's things that you can, here's the types of products you can build um, with Microsoft tools. So it was obvious to me that this, you know, there was a business here and Microsoft, this is, Microsoft wasn't an enterprise software company at the time. Um, so they had no interest in developing something like that. So we basically started the company to sell this enterprise um, procurement to large corporations. And that's, so I was the CEO, my boyfriend, who's now my husband at the time was the CTO. He was, he was the developer and we got our first, uh, check from a guy named Carrie Timbrell, who was at Goldman Sachs. And I was, I had an offer to go back and I was trying to decide if I should, you know, take that, which seemed great to me or start this business. And he said, you absolutely should start this business and I'll, I'll provide you with your seed money. That's incredible. It's like to get that vote of confidence from someone. How much did you ultimately raise? It, oh, and the first round was really small. It was $100,000. And yeah. um, just going back to the story on, um, on um, Carrie, he, he went to Stanford Business School in 19, I think he was class in 1980 or 1981. And he was talking about how he was in the same class with Steve Ballmer and Steve Ballmer was going, was dropping out, was going to drop out to go work for, you know, the small company in Seattle. And he, Steve Ballmer had had an offer to go back to McKinsey or to go to McKinsey. And, and his offer was for $60,000 a year. And they're like, he said, he remembers them all talking to him. Like, how can you give up that? How can you give up $60,000 a year? You know? So Those said, are crazy he told stories. that story and said, you absolutely have to go do this. Yeah. And how long did it take until you, I guess, did you sell the company? Exit. So yeah. we concur acquired seven software and that was a, about a couple years, a little over two years. And then I was with concur for a little under a year. So that was like a, what an incredible know, really success story. Yeah, that's so yeah. fast. That's not common, of course, at all. That's amazing. No. And, and that's where, you know, the industrial supply company was five years to an exit and concur was like a little over two years to an exit. Yeah. And then really three years by the time we ultimately got the exit in terms of the company going public. But, you know, you think you're pretty smart when you get a couple really good exits for, for yourself and your investors. And then I went into venture and I, you know, joined venture at the very beginning of 2000. So right, you know, at the peak of the dot-com bubble, but, you know, we backed companies with um, entrepreneurs that were way smarter than I am, that worked a lot longer and a lot harder than I did and didn't have the success. So you realize how much, you know, luck and timing really plays into it. It's the numbers are astounding. And what, how important was it uh, to you at the time to support and invest in women? Oh, well, I know that that's one of your passions now, but when you were doing venture, when you were doing venture for is. all those years, and like back, 
Yeah. And back then I wasn't really thinking about it. Um, I was involved with an organization called Forum for Women Entrepreneurs when I started Citizen Software and it was hugely helpful, but it wasn't until after being in BC for about 10 years and then moving to Australia and I connected with a couple other um, really fascinating women, Janet uh, Menzies and um, Alex Burrell, and we started this organization called Heads Over Heels. And I was just at that point, just tired of, as a VC, I hardly ever saw women pitch me. So it wasn't just like, I need to actually see more women in the room. Yeah. We just weren't seeing any. So we started heads over heels as an organization. Um, It's been around now for over 10 years and it's got CEO and sponsors and all of that, but it was, you know, we, in the beginning it was volunteer led, but we, um, the way we support CEOs is, you know, it's competitive to become a heads over heels portfolio company. And then what we do is we expose them to our connectors who are senior business leaders who are willing to open up their networks um, to help these women. And as you know, Shauna, you know this really well, that oftentimes it's just that one connection or one introduction that made the difference in, you know, your company or your career. Absolutely. So we've been doing that for the last 11 years and, and um, that's, that's been incredible. my project. And so much has changed in the last 11 years. I mean, well, and now really it's a lot of more that. people interested in leaning in and kind of paying attention. Yeah. What have been some of the results of those investments and where are these female entrepreneurs? Are they all over everywhere or Australia? Yeah. Yeah. So Heads Over Heels is Australian based, although we're going to do our first, um, our first, because in in COVID, we realized that we could do this on Zoom. So, and it works really well. It used to be all in-person events, but um, Zoom actually works really well. So we're going to do our first one in the U.S. and I'll invite you to it in in March. Absolutely. So it's it's awesome. And there's been, oh gosh, I think there's been like 90 companies now that have gone through. And there's so many stories I could go on and on, but I'll tell one. Um, This is a woman, Sharon New, who runs a company called Expense Manager. And she was, you know, this was a bootstrapped company. And, um, you know, she had a few clients. It was to, it was, it was, it was mid-size. She sells her product to mid-size companies to help with their, um, it's, it's not a concur competitor, but it's, it's for payables to manage them, to automate their payables. Oh, got it. Okay. So, you know, totally bootstrapped. I think she was under 10 people at the time and she, um, we brought her into the heads of her heels portfolio. She had been trying to get to Myob, which is one of the big um, mid mid market account. It's it's the biggest mid market mid market accounting platform for Australian companies, and she'd been trying to get to my into Myob for a year, you know, just get to the right person. And at Heads Over Heels, she said one of her asks is she's looking for an introduction in Myob. So in Heads Over Heels audience was Naomi Simpson, who's a, a really well-known entrepreneur here. She emailed Tim and said, hey, here's this, Tim, who was the CEO of Maya, but at the time, here's this company you should look at. Tim responded right away, got her into the partnership, her totally game-changing for her company, completely. Her company's on a different trajectory. Now they have millions of dollars of revenue and she can, you know, she can track it too. Like a lot of it is a result of that Maya partnership. And all it took was Naomi spending a minute to send an email and Tim, you know, spending a minute on his time to send an email. And it, it was really game changing. So that's, we have kind of story after story like that with heads over heels, where it's just yeah. getting the entrepreneur connected to, um, you know, the right person at the right time with a warm introduction. Yeah. And so is there a lot of, is this a, obviously it's not just a feel good, give back, like support women. There's measurable data that you're looking at. Yes. Yeah. Results. And what type of story are you seeing as far as the past 10 years? Um, 
you know, more women showing up, more funding happening. I know that it's in the past, it's something like 2% of women get um, BC money. BC yeah. Money. And yeah. it's like, so there was something like more men named John on publicly traded boards. Oh yeah. Yeah. And like <laughs> women, like, crazy, yeah. you know, remember, yeah. <laughs> things that, so, that, that um, stick in your brain, of course. It is, it's changing a lot in terms of money going to women-led companies. And I think um, you need to see more, more women-led companies generating high returns for investors. And I think that's what changes investors' behavior. Um, there's Australia looks at these stats. Heads Over Heels is focused in Australia, but Australia looks at these stats. And I think, I think a couple of years ago, a stat came out saying that of the VC dollars that went out, 27% went to companies that had a female founder or co-founder, which is huge. That's huge. And, and I, think, I think one of the reasons for that is, um, you know, one of our most successful companies in Australia is a company called Canva. I don't know if you- I know Canva. Heard of Canva. Of yeah. And, yes. and their valuation is like $50 billion now or something. And it's run by a young woman. Melanie Perkins. So I think when Australians think about how do you make a lot of money in, in, um, as an investor in tech, they're thinking, you know, they're, they, you know, they're thinking you can do this by backing a woman. Yeah. So I love it. So tell me what, tell me about lighter capital. Like we started to touch on it. Um, what is the exact business model and how is it different than a traditional VC? Yeah. So we don't take equity. So we, um, we invest primarily, or we fund primarily B2B SaaS companies. So we look at companies that have recurring revenue and it's, it's very simple in that we will say, we'll give you a dollar. You're going to pay us back. Um, it's a fixed amount, but you know, usually it's around a dollar 30 over three years. So, and we're, you're going to pay us back based on a percent of your revenue until you've paid us that $1.30. And we model it that they'll pay us back over in three years because we're predicting what we think their revenue will be and saying, okay, you're, we're going to get this $1.30 paid back in three years. But if the company grows really quickly um, or if they get acquired, then we get paid back faster. And, you know, company doesn't pay us back any more money, still $1.30, but it, um, we get paid back faster, which means we have a, a greater IRR. You know, if they grow slower than we predicted or if they go out of business, you know, we'll lose money or potentially not even cover our cast of capital. So it really, it just aligns us perfectly with the entrepreneur. Um, right. So and you're coming in later than, you're not coming in at like the pre-seed or seed round because they need to have... Traction well, the revenue? minimum revenue is fifteen thousand a month. So it's usually okay. Yeah, it, but we have companies that have over twenty million in revenue. A lot of times, those are companies that grew with us. Um, but there's, we've done eight hundred and fifty um, financing rounds since we've started, wow. and so there's a lot of great stories. Um, one that I love to tell because it's such an extreme story is a company called Seamless AI um, that's a founded, it's a husband and wife um, founding team, Brandon and Danielle, and they took money from us when they had $3 million in revenue, and they took a couple million dollar um, loans, and then they used that money to grow to over $20 million in revenue. So they got from $3 million in revenue to over $20 million in revenue with zero dilution. Oh, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, Brandon stands up and says he's personally worth more than $100 million, $100 million more as a result of taking this lighter capital, non-dilutive money than if he had taken, because he had offers from VCs when he was $3 million in revenue, but he, yeah. he grew it to 20 plus million and then did a private equity round. So, um, you know, that's an extreme story, but we have, you know, we have 
we we gave two hundred and forty thousand dollars to Fishtown Analytics, or we loaned two hundred and forty thousand dollars to Fishtown Analytics. That's now called DBT Labs. They went on to raise five million from Andreessen, and then thirty million from Sequoia, and then they just did a round, and now they're a unicorn. So you know they were able to you know take our money early on, no control, no dilution. You know to and no, get to them take a board seat. No, no, we don't. We it's this is what's so great. We we help the companies. Um, with connections and, you know, we help them when they're ready to go raise venture capital. We'll help them with their pitch deck. We'll help them with introductions, but we don't take any control. There's no financial covenants. Um, so it's, it's you know, and, and VCs, I was a VC for a long time. They can be super helpful, but of they course. also can be disrupted if, if they have, you know, different exit alignment yeah yeah if there's not alignment or yeah yeah or if there are a lot of times what vcs do um really often because they have to it's their business model is they they just push companies to grow yeah. too quickly and and they put too much risk on the companies and it's exactly as vcs should behave because they're going for those unicorns they need right they need every investment to have the possibility to pay back their fund so you know a lot of times they might they're pushing you know entrepreneurs kind of out of their comfort zone. Right, where the entrepreneur might be holding on strong to like product market fit and like, you know, aligning to make sure that the product is actually where they want it. And they're just focused on like, well, sell, sell, sell. Right, and, and we need, yeah, get that up round. You know, you have to show that huge revenue growth, get that up round. That's, and, and, and you know, that is their business model. Yeah, and how does the deal flow come to you? Like, how do these entrepreneurs find you? If someone's listening right now that, that <laughs> could potentially use some funding, um, or loan? How does it work? It's a super simple process. So there's a prequal where you can go in and spend like less than a minute if you're a slow typer just to see if you might qualify. Um, and that's sort of like, are you a tech company? You know, do you have, if, if all of your revenue comes from one customer, uh, we wouldn't be able to fund it because it's too much risk since we get paid back on revenue. But um, there's that. So that takes less than a minute. And then our application is like 10 minutes. Yeah. So our applicant, we take the data from your bank and your financial from your accounting platform. And so compared to going out and raising a VC round, which can take, you know, months, this is something that literally takes minutes and, yeah. you know, you could be funded in a couple of weeks. Well, it's hard for entrepreneurs too, though, because I'm thinking about people that I know, like even right now that are building companies and they may be just kind of beta testing their idea and not charging customers. Right. And, and trying to kind of find product market fit. They're also trying to fundraise. They're also trying to hire. It's a tough job, like being an entrepreneur, just trying to- It's the hardest job in the world. It's so Maybe not hard. the hardest in the world. I don't know. There's probably some, but it is not easy. It is not for the yeah. faint of heart. And is it just as simple as the criterion that you mentioned as far as qualification? Or is there some sort of analysis on like who the person is that you're actually investing in, like the team? So um, there's a lot of data that goes into the decision and goes into the pricing, but there nothing uh, team is not taken into account at all, um, which is completely different than the venture model. Yes. So the venture model is, you know, team's the most important thing. And that's a completely subjective measurement, which is why, you know, all these unconscious biases come into place, why you don't see, you see such a small percentage of women getting funded because that's not what, you know, you, 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 right. you're, you're used to seeing in terms of um, successful exits. Absolutely. So um, underrepresented so not, founders yeah. for sure, combined even with the pedigree thing, I think. Sometimes I hear about people, <laughs> they got funded and it's like, you don't even have an idea, hardly, but we've got the, <laughs> right. we've got the pedigree or we've got the, like, 
you know, I, I worked at these two companies and I went to this school and it's, right. it's, it's actually what, really what fascinating. What college people went to, I mean, maybe we should put it in our credit decisioning, but um, actually be interesting. We should, we have so much data now after doing this for a decade, we should look back and say, you know, did, did, um, you know, college graduates on average do better than ones that weren't or because we don't or even wish school. I think it would be fascinating, yeah. Melissa. And I think actually, if you start to show the ROI, to the community would be actually super fascinating because it is still a good old boys network. I mean, it just is. The, the yeah, no, ab absolutely. And we, um, yeah, we don't, it, it doesn't go into, because it's not quantifiable. Right. Without using subjective measurements and, and. Interesting. And so what are the, can you tell us what the data is that you look at? Well, the, the primary thing that we're looking at is um, revenue, customer churn. Um, we want to see low customer concentration. And then, you know, into the credit decisioning, a lot else goes in. What because about like total addressable market or size or like speed no. of like where they are in the market as far as no. first to move? <laughs> no, none of that. No, not really. No. And, and so a lot. So, you know, Sometimes we're funding the number one player in the space, but sometimes we're funding the number three or four because what we're looking at, are they going to pay back our loan? You know, we're not taking right. equity in these companies. Are they going to be able to pay back our loan? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I love to tell the story of uh, Fishtown Analytics. That's a unicorn now after taking $240,000 of our money, right? But, you know, we're made the same from them as a company that, you know, just maybe chugged along. It almost must be hard. I feel like that would be like hard almost like to not feel like, oh, imagine if we had an equity piece of this company a little bit. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because when I was on the board before I was the CEO, I thought, oh, should we be taking equity? Should we push for warrants? But now being in it, I see it's, it's just very much our, our um, value proposition not to. Yeah. As we go up market, if we get more into venture debt, I mean, one of the things we do see is we have some companies that kind of graduate out of us and they still want to grow with debt, but we're capped at 4 million. So, you know, some of our best companies that get to that point where they could support, you know, over 4 million in debt and want to keep growing that way. And um, we'll introduce them to, we partner with a lot of traditional venture debt providers yeah, um, who will take, you know, they'll typically take the one or 2% of the company and warrants along with a debt piece. Yeah. So, so um, it's not, I mean, but your model is so much more. It's our business model, right? And it's like so much more is... founder friendly that it almost feels like, you know, how you're recommending something to a friend, but if you felt like you were getting paid on the back end, you wouldn't probably mm. recommend as purely. For this yeah. is like purely like, it feels clean. It feels just really simple and clean, and that there's no weird agendas and there's no weird. Um, I don't know. It, it it feels really good. Like the business. Yeah. Feels I like it. Yeah. And, and it is really good. You get in, sometimes people will say, okay, what's the catch? What's the catch? And it's like, there's no catch. You know, there's <laughs> no, it's, this is what it is. It's, and we've done pretty well with it. Yeah. Interesting. And so what have you done as far as being CEO of, you know, you're in a male dominated industry, you're leading, I'm guessing mostly remotely your team. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, we went remote yeah. when the pandemic happened. Um, I came on board as the CEO in September of 2020, but we went remote, you know, as everybody did. Um, but we got rid of our super expensive Seattle lease. A lot of our team members moved out of Seattle in the pandemic. And we said, that's great. And I don't mean moved out of Seattle, like 
move to Issaquah. I mean, like move to like Georgia or California. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's, um, it's wonderful because now when we hire, we're not limited to the Seattle market, which as you know, is like a really tough market for yes. tech to yeah. hire in. It opens um, up a way bigger talent pool for everyone. And it also, you know, when the surveys have gone out recently talking to candidates and we've talked to candidates, they don't necessarily, I mean, a lot of people want some sort of hybrid model, but they definitely would probably say no if we said a client required them to come to work. Is they that right? They don't want to. Mm, I mean, they yeah. want some sort of either combo of remote or hybrid. But yeah. if it was like, hey, no, you need to be in butts and seat eight to five, nine to five, whatever, five days a week, mm. that candidate, I mean, that client would have such a small candidate pull to source from. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's, it's not changed. just a, it's not just a health issue, right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like a way people want it's to a work. Lifestyle. But, yeah. People have found yeah. that productive or like you're talking about exercise, you know, before I'd get up and go 6am to the gym and now I'm like, do you, you know, do that every day, Shauna? Uh, no. <laughs> wow. I try to work out five or six days a week, but I'm much more likely to since the pandemic because I might do it at 11. Like in between a call, like I'll just, you know, party on the top, work out on the bottom outfit on Zoom (laughs) and then like quickly jump on the Peloton. You know, like you can get a little bit more where to me, that's like treating the whole person or being a mom who might want to feel like I could throw in a load or go pick up my daughter in between three calls. And I feel more grounded in that, but I also miss my team tremendously. And so it is this weird balance. So my question for you is like, how have you led through, I mean, this is all you know, it sounds like at Lighters being a remote leader, but how have you shown up as a leader through pandemic and needing to kind of keep people's mental health Mm. in check? Well, one thing that's interesting, um, when I came to Lighter, their vacation policy, which I guess is pretty common with a lot of U.S. startups, is unlimited vacation. Um, but you, if you're going to take more than four weeks, you need to get permission. And I thought, well, that's a really generous policy. In Australia, people have four weeks and everybody takes it. Um, but what I found out after showing up to Lighter is that people didn't take vacation that the culture was sort of, even though they had unlimited vacation, they actually weren't taking it. And um, it's, I think it's so important to get that, to get away and get that downtime. So what we put in place was um, we actually pay people a bonus if they take vacation. And if they take a week, we will give them $500. But if they check their email, no $500. So they they, you know, we are, and we, and we celebrate it. Like when someone takes a vacation and gets the $500 bonus, which, you know, $500 is not going to change anyone's life or even pay for a vacation, but it's, it's just to say, look, we really, you know, there's a problem if you're not, if you're not doing this and we know that you're going to be, you know, better, uh, you're going to be a happier person and, you know, just a better contributor if you do get away. Well, especially now because there is no, there's such blurred lines because people are working 24 seven. They're like, I'm I'm going to bed with my phone next to me and waking up and checking my email. And that does create like not, I'm not just saying it. I'm actually measuring it and I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I'm giving you actual money. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And then we, um, the one thing I, I mean, this is something I, every time I meet, um, the CEO of another, uh, you know, startup or tech company, I asked them how they're handling the remote piece because um, Lighter has such a great culture and how do we keep that going, you know, when we're not together every day. And so we're constantly 
you know, trying to figure out best practices for that. What we've settled on, and it's so hard with this pandemic, what we've settled on is twice a year, we're going to get together in person in some really cool place. In March, we're going to Hawaii. Um, and, you know, it'll be, you know, company updates and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's more about just that sort of intense, That's amazing. cooler well, my, my, yeah. my team is going to Mexico all together in, in oh. March. So we might be- Oh, awesome. Plus their, plus their plus ones. And we actually have rescheduled it because it was supposed to be in March, 2020. Then we moved it to 2021. Oh, now, now we're finally going to Oh my gosh. And I just find it's just going to be incredible. Like the bonding. And I'm like you, like I take the culture thing very, very seriously. I don't take it yeah. for granted that people wake up every day and have choices. And the fact that they've chosen to work with us um, is an honor. And so I love yeah. that. So twice a year, that's incredible. And then you're giving this vacation. What other things are you learning from people that are good takeaways? I always, half of me is like, I do the podcast just selfishly to get nuggets. Yeah, like, no, no. Well, so one, one thing, and in fact, I'm just about to um, put a blog post out about it is, you know, when the whole, when the, um, and you would be right in the middle of this as a recruiter, but when the great resignation was happening, you know, and we've had really good retention at Lighter, but in um, September, October, we had like three people resign within, um, within, you know, a couple of weeks. And I thought, oh my God, what is, what's happening here? And they all resigned for really good reasons and either going to a different place that made a lot of sense or something we couldn't offer them. But um, I thought, okay, how do we handle this? Because that's kind of the biggest stress a CEO has. If you, you know, you're doing everything and trying to provide the right culture and the right opportunities, and and still, if you lose, if you lose someone, so so what we what I said to the team is, I said, look, we are um, we you know we want everyone to stay here. It's phenomenal team, but if you are going to look around, you know, let us know and we might not have the next opportunity for you. I mean, there's not opportunity for everyone to move up when you're a small company because there's just nowhere to go in some, in some roles. So I said, but let us know. We will, I will use my network. I will be a reference for you. I will use my network to um, introduce you to potential employers, you know, just we're, we're here to help you with your career, whether it's at Lighter or elsewhere. And, um, you know, we really live by that. That's so, so interesting that you say that because I just had this exact, <laughs> exact conversation with my team because I, so, I had the same thing. We never lose people. We've had such great tenure. And then we lost a couple of people after being with me for like five years plus. Yeah. And there is that like small company, like where is there to go? And one, one woman who's just been phenomenal gave me about four or five months notice. And we've been yeah. Together to try to find something great at fuel and the way she handled it was so incredible and I said let me help you like let's yeah. work together I've got this network and yeah. I'm happy to help and so I used it as an opportunity to talk to the team and say listen there's nothing worse especially in a small company that you feel like you're trying to do everything intentionally to build like a family culture of transparency and like holistically treating the, the human not just like what are you bringing to the table right for the, for the bottom line but like Truly, like we, we build these strong relationships. And I said, I never want, it's the worst feeling when someone walks in and is like, here's my two weeks, I've taken another job. It's like, oh my God, it feels, it's hard not to <laughs> get your feelings hurt. So I said, never feel like you can't come to me and we can try everything to make it work. And if not, we can help you. I think it's so, yeah. I love that. You're the only other person I've heard that's actually said that to their team, but I could just see on Zoom, I could feel people's energy relax. Yeah. It just takes the yeah. pressure off. It's like, listen, it's okay if it's not for you. Um, right. 
let us be part yeah. of the solution together. I love that. Interesting. Um, one of our portfolio companies, and I won't mention it because I just haven't asked for their permission, but when we did our CEO summit, which was great, we got a bunch of our CEOs together and went to Arizona and, and you know, like, it's just amazing what comes together when you've got a, C C a whole bunch of CEOs of different, um, you know, high tech growth companies. But um, he, we were talking about, this was in October. So the great resignation was fresh on everyone's mind. So we had a panel to discuss that. And he talked about how one of his key employees came to him and said, I've got, um, I've been um, approached for this job at a um, really, you know, well-known company that kind of everyone wants to go work for a big company. And, you know, I just wanted to tell you, I think I'm going to go for it. And he said, great, let me help you. And she had to put together a PowerPoint for the, um, you know, for the, the interview. And he helped her with that and spent, you know, time after work helping her get ready for it. And he, he did not want to lose her. She was like his right-hand person. Um, and then she got the offer and at the end stayed with him. So I she's love it. Yeah. I love and it. I mean, look, that's not going to be the outcome all the time, but I, right. I think, you know, this is, it's a, it's a collaboration, right? Well, and it's a, it's a sign of a good leader. I think when you're mentoring people and developing them and, and, hoping that they continue to grow. And if it's with you, awesome. If it's not, it's really hard to lose good people. And I'm not saying this to encourage anybody to leave you or no, no. ever. We don't want that. But it is actually a sign of an incredible mentor and leader, I think, when you're developing people to that level. Melissa, how do you find time for all of this? And my question for you is, with time, I guess, being our most valuable asset with your four kids and, the, and running lighter and traveling and just all these boards, how do you, through what lens are you deciding which board seats you'll take? And that's the first question. The second is what, what makes somebody a good board member? Mm. So I don't sit on a lot of boards now. Like I've sat but on a lot of boards. over time, like you have, right, right, right. I mean, it's yeah, incredible. But right, right now I've got lighter. I'm on the Shore Foundation board, which is where my kids go to school here in Sydney and then heads over heels, I chair. So those are, and, and I've been approached for other um, board positions and I don't have the time right now. I, I might in a year from now, but right now there's just so much to do at lighter that I don't have the time. So, so it, I, look, time management, time, that's, that's, if you figure that out, tell me, Shauna. I haven't um, figured it out. I, I would say, oh, one thing, this is something that this guy named Paul Taylor, who's like this guru coach, you know, motivational speaker who NAB, you know, would bring in um, to talk to team members when I was at National Australia Bank. And he, he taught something called the catastrophe scale. And I talk about this all the time, but it's, you know, he says, okay, think about like the worst thing that happened to you last week. And, and where does it sit on the catastrophe scale? Like, a, you know, one to a 10, right? And 10 is like worst and one is not so bad. And before he goes into that, he talks about what stress does to your body and to your productivity and how like stress just really is damaging. It's not good for you. Not, not just not good for your productivity. Maybe some people thrive on stress, but it's actually really bad for your health. So, um, you know, people think about the worst thing and they go, oh, okay, that's, that's an eight, you know, and then it's something that, you know, had a bad presentation with your boss. And he goes, okay, now imagine you came home and you found out that your whole family had been killed in a car car crash. You know, he goes, where's that sitting? I was like, oh my God, that's a 10. He goes, no, no, that's about an eight and a half. 
And then, and then he says, imagine like your family's beheaded in front of you and then you're forced to go fight in ISIS like my mate so-and-so had to do. And he goes, you know, maybe that's a nine and a half or a 10. And wh what that does is it just goes, oh my God, like why am I letting stress over these things that really don't matter? Why am I letting this stress me out at all? So I think that's something you just kind of learn with age and that helps with the time management, not knowing you're not going to get to everything. And, and you know, at the end of the day, you're just going to do your best. Right. It's about, it's about like the perspective, but so yeah. for you having been on so many different boards, um, what has made you um, feel like it's worth your time and what makes somebody a good board member? Mm. So a good board member, I mean, there's so many different ways you can be a, a, a good board member. Um, one just, you know, I have a great board at Lighter Capital and the board, they're always there. Um, they're supportive when I need it. They provide great advice and they open up their networks. So I think depending on the needs of the company and the needs of the CEO, you know, um, being able to open up their, the network is um, usually the, the most valuable thing that a board member can bring. There's the advice and the sounding board as well, but that th those are things you can get from a lot of different places. I know when I first um, started serving on boards as a venture capitalist, I really didn't know what, what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to add value. And, you know, I would try and get in and kind of help run the company because I was an operator. I, I, you know, I wanted to add value. And I think that's the thing to think about when you have a board that is, um, that's mainly made up of investors who are there because they have a right to be there because of their investment versus ones that you invited on is that they're all, most of them are really just trying to be productive. So I've, I've met so many entrepreneurs who, um, don't use their boards and don't reach out to their board members. They just assume they're very busy and they are busy. But, but in my experience, um, board members really want to be helpful. Yeah. So I, you, I would and, say find out where, where the needs are of the CEO and, and help them and support yeah. the heck out of the CEO until you don't and then get a new CEO. <laughs> get a new CEO. And so, yes, the network is super helpful, but if you were, to go right now and run and, and operate a different company, not lighter capital, but operate like a tech company. What is your personal like ninja skill? I know mine are really, I'm very clear on my strengths and I'm very clear on my weaknesses. Like, are you more of a, a marketer? Are you an operator? Are you like a product person? Like, where are you, um, where do you excel? I, I would, on the sales side. Yeah, and sales That's and awesome. vision. Yeah. That's awesome. I love the feeling of sales. And I've always said this, and I say this to my kids. I'm like, if you can sell, like you're always going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. always say you can land on your feet. Like at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I just think it's an incredible skill to have because if, if you can create revenue and you can create business out of something, yeah. it's like the rest well, of Well, starting it a company, I mean, you are in an ultimate sales position, Shauna, right? Like because you are selling people on their future. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think but for me, like my, I don't think of myself as being like my special skill being sales. I think of my skill as being connecting people. Right. Like I love to connect. Like I want to, in my mind, I'm like, even through this conversation, I'm like, Ooh, I need to remember to introduce Melissa to these three people. Yeah, because yeah. in my mind, if it, if it goes well, I get a little hit of some sort out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. a connector also. And I think that that's something that's just like, you either have that or you don't. And I love to do that. But sales is like quintessential. When I hear the word sales, I think of 
um, like calling and then calling again and then calling again. And I'm actually really bad at that. <laughs> I, lose, <laughs> I lose patience and I lose interest and I don't have like systems. And I think of salespeople as being like relentless and I don't have that mm. feeling of like, I need to win. I have the feeling of, I want these people to meet these other people and I hope something comes of it. And through that sales have come. Like for right, me, right. But, for I, but I think that makes you an incredible salesperson because you're thinking about the, you know, the ultimate, what's going to be the best, the best outcome or for your customer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. So how are you balancing your time right now? Like personally, I know you're trying to work out more. What do you do? Yeah. To, and I know we're trying to work on our time management. Are there apps or are there systems that you have in place to kind of set yourself up for a good week or a good month? Um, that's my new year's resolution. So if you find something that works, let me know. <laughs> but um, no, I, 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 I need a lot of work in that area. I don't think I am qualified at all to advise in that area. Do you ever pull yourself out, do like a planning of your life thinking moment? Like I never do that. I'm so busy in my life that I'm not necessarily working on my life. Like, okay, what do I want it to look like in five years or 10 years? Or do you do yeah. that? Uh, yes, but it's usually like been in a forced situation. Like, I mean, working at a big company at NAB, that was great for that because there were a lot of, you know, there was a lot of opportunities for that and a lot of um, little programs for that. I'll tell you, I, and my husband says, I'm really good at delegating. <laughs> I might mean, I'm really good at delegating to him, but I, and, and I've never, I, I, I think, you know, I wish my house, when I go to people's houses that are just so organized and like you open every drawer and it's perfect. I would love to have that. I'm you never going to You and I are that, the though. same I, human, Melissa. I, have I to, literally. I would have to have someone else do it. I would have, I like, you know, so, I'm, so like wow. I, th that makes you more productive because you're not spending time on those things. But I always am quite envious when I go into a house that is um, completely well-organized. What's sad is that I'm sure you do what I do, which is I start shaming myself for being like less than in some way that I don't have those <laughs> drawers. And then I'm like, you know, and I'll, and I'll comment on it. Cause I actually, it's actually a total trigger of some sort for me too. Of like, why aren't I having the like countertops with not one thing on them and the beautiful orchid <laughs> is like the centerpiece. No, yeah. I don't know. It's we've women put so much pressure on ourselves. It's absolutely insane. It's crazy. Um, so Here's my last question. What do you do to totally unwind and relax if there's anything? I, I read a lot. Um, I, yeah, I read a lot. So what are you reading right really now? Like, oh gosh, I'm reading, um, I'm reading Atlas Shrugged and I had never read that book by Anne Rand, but my son who is a prolific reader and reads a lot of, you know, classics for fun. He, he said it was really good. And so I thought I would read it because I was never, it was never on my reading list in high school or college. Um, and it's super interesting, especially in these times. So I need, I'm writing it down. I always get such good nuggets in this podcast. My final question for you is what fuels you? Entrepreneurs, 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 entrepreneurs. Anytime I'm getting down, I just have a meeting with one of our customers and I'm just, it, it, it just pumps my energy. So it's absolutely, I'm an extrovert, like you are, you know, I get my energy from other people. Um, so the end from entrepreneurs, especially. 
I love it. Well, they're lucky to have you and I wish you much continued success. I'm tracking you and I'm super inspired by you. So thank you for joining on the podcast. Well, and thank you, Shauna. And I want to, you, I want to give you a little bit of a plug. So we are working with you for the first time at Fuel Talent to hire somebody in marketing, as you know, and I was just, I'm one, I'm blown away by the service from Mindy and your team, but also just the, within two days of us, you know, putting this job wreck out, you delivered five amazing candidates, which well, I that's was all just, Mindy and her team, <laughs> but I was and, just blown away by that. Um, so, and, and it's, you have such a great reputation in the Seattle area. And, um, you know, you. now that we've gone to this virtual world, yeah, it's endless. It'll probably grow beyond Seattle. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the what fuels you podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.